Welcome to ATL in 29, the podcast that looks at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. This week, the Hawks have a game Wednesday against the Milwaukee Bucks, and so today we'll talk to Adam McGee of Behind the Buck Pass. On today's episode, we discuss which players the Hawks should be using to guard Giannis Adetokounmpo, which players the Bucks should be choosing to place around the core of Giannis, Jabari, and Chris Middleton, and how close they're getting to those types of players in actuality. We'll look at how the career trajectory of Dwight Howard and his free throws mirrors Giannis and his three-point stroke. And finally, we'll take a look at the Hawks and Bucks and their respective efforts towards securing D-League teams. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's get started. We're here with Adam McGee of Behind the Buck Pass. Um, Adam, do you know the story of renaming that blog? I do. I heard this when you were when you were on timeout with Ty with uh, my co-editor time Ty Windish. It's our own sort of little six degrees of separation thing going on. Yeah, it was. It was the the blog was originally named We Are Bucked, which is really a horrible name, especially when you go to the team asking for credentials. Yeah, it, it doesn't definitely wouldn't help in that sort of situation. <laughs> so so tell us, Adam. Uh, how how did you become number one a Hawks fan, number two a Bucks writer, and how do you manage following the NBA from five, six, seven time zones away? It's probably pretty apparent to anyone um, as soon as they hear me speak that I am from a different part of the world. <laughs> Um, how I came into it, it's really, it's the answer to all of these questions is Hawks related, even the book side of it. Um, I sort of liked the NBA as a kid, but we would get very little exposure to it here in terms of live TV or anything. Really only all-star games, you, they might have highlights from. Um, so it was something I, I always liked, I always enjoyed, but it really came out of like, old NBA live video games as much as anything. There just wasn't a real outlet to stay up to date with the league. That sort of gradually changed then, I guess in the mid to late 2000s, um, ESPN came over and they started showing Premier League soccer, which would be, I suppose, my first love, like most people from this side of the Atlantic. Um, so just one day I was waiting for a game to start. Um, it was a Saturday and they were showing that... A rerun of the night before's game, which was a Hawk Suns game. Uh, this was like Steve Nash and Mary Stoudemire's Suns. Um, it was a really nice team. And I, I sort of started the game and I was more familiar with the Suns because of those two guys from, from playing video games or whatever. So I was sort of drawn to them. And as the game progressed, I just started to sort of get sucked in by the Hawks and more specifically it was Josh Smith which people now find hilarious but anyone who watched Hawks at that time will know that was a very real thing sure um I, I wrote a, a piece about this actually recently it was sort of about Josh Smith but framed with how I came to get into the NBA and everything over at the, the step back at fan-sided and it was really at that time he just had this sort of incredible athletic ability sure that you didn't really see in many other sports so in spite of me being a fan of tons of different sports the way 
he went out and could block shots for fun. I think in, in that game, he ended up with over 20 points, maybe five or six assists, 11 rebounds, four blocks. Like it was, it was a classic Jace move, stuff in the stat sheet kind of game. Uh, and then I guess to top it all off, the Hawks won with a Jamal Crawford buzzer beater from just just inside the Suns' half, just past half court. <laughs> so from there, I sort of wow, maybe I should maybe I should sort of take a little bit of a closer look at this. And I, I did. It started off as just sort of checking in daily with box scores and watching highlight videos and sort of clips from press conferences, things like that. And then probably. By the next season, I took the big step of shelling up for league pass, and <laughs> it's all been history from there. And th- then for the book side of it, I've been writing probably for two, two and a half years, um, just as sort of staff writer, contributor in different places, mostly about the Hawks. And I decided I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to be an editor at a site. I wanted to sort of put my own site together and... It so happened there was a few options open to me at the time. And Zaza Pachulia happened to be a book. Nice. Uh, <laughs> former favorite of mine from his days as a hawk. So it was really Zaza Pachulia that led to me writing about the books, running a book site. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel the same way, you know, just in terms of, you know, some of the, the teams that I've followed over the course of my life, you know, just it's it's sort of you know a player switches from one team to another and then you're kind of keeping track of two teams and then another player switches teams and you're keeping track of three <laughs> it's, it's funny, funny how that, that works yeah it's sort of something that i don't know it's even with josh smith i found that when he went to the pistons first now obviously the way things have have gone since i no longer have to sort of keep track of josh smith's teams but it is it's it's strange sort of the players or the the details of games that can draw you to a team and um, so it's just that sort of i could have turned on the tv a week earlier and caught an nba game that the hawks weren't in but i guess that's just how it works so it's a it's a story that i think it feels even weirder as time goes on <laughs> and i'm more involved with everything nba related but yeah that's that's how it all started it was josh smith that brought me to the hawks and then Zaza Pachulia brought me with him to the books as such. So uh, are you going to be able to follow Josh this season? Is it is it easier or is it more difficult to follow a team that's, let's say, five time zones in front of you instead of five time zones behind you? I, I don't think the whole China thing helps me out, <laughs> particularly when I'm trying to stay on top of things in the U.S. So <laughs> right. it, that, that one's going to be a little bit more more difficult. I'm probably just going to have to wait for the like the Michael Beasley-esque high- highlights and headlines that come out where he has 63 points in a game or whatever. Hopefully there'll be some of that. But um, no, uh, the, the focus will, will stay on the NBA. Excellent. Well, uh, one segment that I wanted to start you out with here was the 100 to 200 segment where we ask you for something in between a mildly controversial opinion and a highly controversial one. Um, so we're going to let you take over and tell us what your personal opinion is, and then I'm going to guess how you scored it. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Take it away. This is one I'm not so sure. I don't know. Maybe deep down inside, people won't feel it's that controversial, but it's so unpopular that 
maybe hearing it will be a little bit jarring for some people. Um, mine is that I, d- I don't think a team can win and in a sort of really meaningful way, um, definitely not win a title in the NBA with Russell Westbrook on their team. Okay. I think we saw, obviously, in OKC, they never got over it. Obviously, injuries played a really big role in that. But I don't think there's... In a league that's sort of designed now on having not just a first option, but having multiple guys who can do a little bit of everything, who are really star-caliber players, I don't think there's a better fit for Westbrook in pairing him with another star than Kevin Durant. And with that not really having worked out, I just don't know if his sort of aggressive style could really translate with anyone else. When you think of a lot of the top teams in the league, I think plugging Westbrook into them is going to be a lot of fun to watch. But I don't know if it necessarily helps them to win a title. Um, So I feel he's an incredible player in terms of just the wide range of things he can do. But for me, he... I don't know. I don't want to say he, there's a lot of empty stats, but he will always be a more more of an individual player than someone who's really conductive to team success. I hear you. I'm on board with most of that. Uh, you know, they were so close though, <laughs> and it was they, at the same time it was painful to watch the end of some of those games in the Western Conference Finals where, you know, they had a real shot at winning. They were up 3-1, the games were close, and you'd watch the last two, three minutes, and they would just completely implode by making bad decisions. And I, I think that's part of what Westbrook is. He's, he's kind of a one-pace player, and you can sort of overwhelm a team for a certain period of time, or you could do it throughout a regular season if you're playing a team three times in the regular season. A Russell Westbrook team could win all three of those games and do so comfortably. But by the time the playoffs comes around, I don't know if he makes it overly difficult to make adjustments. Like, there's certain things you're going to let him have just because he's so athletic and he's so powerful and strong for his size. But when it boils down to then the ball in his hand is in his hands and maybe it's a slower half-court set, he can't just get to the rim as easy. And then he has to create either for a teammate or then with a shot for himself that's where things sort of start to go bad for me and I I don't know Russell Westbrook is one of these players doesn't really fit my eye in terms of players I like maybe a good way of putting that would be I was never the biggest Kobe Bryant fan um I maybe being a Hawks fan explains some of this but I, I tend to like sort of team first guys who can sort of just mesh in with their surroundings a little bit more comfortably. And I just think in Westbrook, that's a, it's it's kind of a flaw that's going to underpin his career in spite of the crazy amount of talent he has. Yeah. And to, to, to go back on what you said a couple of minutes ago, I, I'm with you in the sense that Kevin Durant was probably an ideal teammate for him. And so when you say that he won't win a championship because he didn't do it with Durant, that kind of makes sense. But I'm also of the opinion that the players that they put around Westbrook and Durant weren't necessarily ideal fits. So, all right, so to get to scoring this, I've because because they were so close, 
I'm going to say that it's a little more controversial than, than it might have said. So maybe like 162. You, you've gone higher than me. I, okay. I, I would have put this at about a 120. Oh, okay. Um, as, as, I, as I sort of said to lead it off, I feel like it's... <laughs> I feel like deep down there's something in this that every NBA fan believes, but because he's so much fun to watch and people enjoy rooting for him even more now that he's on this sort of one-man redemption mission, it's maybe something that people choose to look away from. Yeah. But I, I think it's I don't think it's sort of the coldest take or the hottest it takes either. It probably is somewhere in the the middle range, but I I probably put it around. Around 120, unpopular, but not necessarily the hottest would be in how I. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, there's almost like two questions here. It's like, will he ever win a title? Probably not, just because it's so hard and there are so many talented teams, so many talented teams. But at the same time, if you sort of put it out there as sort of this theoretical, can you win a championship with Russell Westbrook as your best player? That sort of that almost seems like a different question. Like, you know, is it possible to do it? I think it's possible to do it. I don't think it'll happen though. And I, I do think he'd have to be the best player. Sure. Because if if you're teaming like three guys together, mm-hmm. probably LeBron's championship teams are the best example of this. Where you have like in Miami, you have a Chris Bosh who has to make sacrifices. Right. In Cleveland, you have a Kevin Love who has to make sacrifices. You can't call on Westbrook to be a guy who has to make sacrifices. And then finding one or two stars who complement him really well, but are also going to let him go and be the guy, I think that's that's a real challenge for the Thunder in the long term to try and figure out. I agree. Well, c- can you can you fit a, some pieces around Giannis? <laughs> it's almost like they're, they're weirdly comparable players on offense. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're they're masters of the fast break. They put so much pressure on you in transition. They're great with the ball. They're great at the rim. But then there are other places, uh, you know, outside shooting where they're they're not so great. And maybe they're different players defensively, but I think offensively there's a, a lot of good comparisons there. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask you today, Adam, was, you know, if you're the Bucks and you're looking at a core of Giannis, Jabari, and Chris Middleton what two other pieces do you want to have in sort of a perfect world as your, let's say, fourth and fifth options to put around Giannis, Jabari, and Chris? I think with the books, because of because of the skill sets that, say, Giannis has and maybe more the deficiencies than anything, as you said, the, the shooting is an issue. We'll still call it an issue with Jabari, although he has sort of started season shooting the ball a lot better than he's shown previously in the NBA. He looks good. He really does. <laughs> I, he's going to get the, there. Yeah, I, I've I've felt that for a long time. It's <laughs> Jabari's a really divisive player with books fans, and I'm, I can never really wrap my head around why that is. I don't know if that's maybe because he was the guy who was expected to be the face of the franchise and sort of the true savior, and then Giannis has sort of come out and maybe usurped them in that sort of ranking for some people that the expectations and the reality of what they're getting is a little different. That's a weird sort of internal battle that seems to go on with a lot of books fans. Uh-huh. Um, but to, to get back to, to the question of, I guess, fitting guys around them, I, I think for the books, 
they are going to always need guys who fit as just sort of guy guy X and guy Y in the starting lineup. And then you're going to need a bench that maybe has a little bit more talent so that you can keep your lineups fluid. Because you're going to want to have Jabari and Yanis out there together. Okay. Whether you'll be able to do that for long stretches is a different question. I think this is a question the books looked really hard at this summer. And that's a big part of why they committed a lot of money to Matthew Delvadova and Miles Plumley. Mm. I <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> On that one I I think I think Delhi is I think Delhi is very close to really one of the better realistic fits the books could have in terms of what they'd be able to add financially and style to sort of plug in as point guard or the point guard defender maybe more than anything else i think he's quite a good fit on that Plumley is and that, that contract is if it didn't look great in the summer it's really not getting any better with every passing game but i can see what the books saw in how the team operated with Plumley last year and what they thought they could get he's the sort of high energy role guy who's going to give solid defensive effort. And with those things, he should mesh well on both sides. The one thing I feel at center, and particularly with Jabari's defensive issues, I still feel they needed someone who was not just an average defender, but was actually a good defender. And maybe someone who could be a little bit more of a rim protector at that spot as well. Two guys sort of, and just, I guess we're keeping this sort of at a level that it's, these are fill-in guys, really, who, when you're paying Jabari Giannis all of the money that they're going to have by this time next year when Jabari signs his extension, someone who for years I wanted the books to trade for was Gorgie Chang. As soon as the sort of logjam merged in Minnesota of centers, back before, I mean, Pekovic was just a complete write-off in terms of being injured every year. Gorgie Jang was the kind of guy who I thought could be a defensive anchor, a good rim protector, and besides someone like Jabari would be interesting. And I guess okay. this summer that, that transferred over to someone I was really intrigued by and it wasn't surprised to see who ultimately picked him up was Dwayne Dedman. Um, oh. I really liked Dwayne Dedman a lot. And I feel he could do everything Plumley could do, perhaps in a more athletic way again and offer greater rim protection. And, of course, he signed for a deal that was like $11 million per year less than what his family did. Yeah, it's crazy that to, to not get too far afield here, but it's I'm, I'm intrigued to see if somehow the balance of power in the Western Conference between the Spurs and Warriors hinges on Zaza and Dwayne Dedman being the two yeah. signings at center. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the Warriors were, were rumored to be interested in Dedman for quite a while as well. And, of course, he, he started out as a Warrior, right? Uh, I, I want to say they may have drafted him, or he might have. He might actually come up sort of as an undrafted guy, but that they signed him early in his career. But yeah, that's definitely. I mean, I, I feel that was one of the best signings when you get past the obvious, like Kevin Durant, of course. But just in terms of getting a guy who can offer her a real high impact in whether he plays pretty limited minutes or ends up taking a greater role, I thought that was a great pickup for the Spurs. He's so, a guy I really want books. So if 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 Gorgie Jang and Dwayne Dedman are your your picks for maybe a big man to put next to those three, who would 
who would be your ideal choice, let's say, for maybe a guard or somebody on the perimeter to put with them? The guard one is tricky because it already hinges on what you see Yanis as or what you feel the book see Yanis as. And this summer, it was very much point Yanis. And this is what we were all preparing for. It was the soundbite that we kept getting from everyone around the books. And sort of interestingly enough, he's handled the ball a lot less than expected earlier this year. He hasn't initiated the offense quite as much. There has been a little bit of a split there. I mean, if Yanis does get to a stage where he's entirely comfortable with every element of being a point guard as such, then you can go for another defender. It could really be any sort of any sort of three and D guy. Reliable above average three point shooter, above average defender, and the books don't need much more than that. The the name that for books fans was at the top of the list for a, a long time. And I don't know, I think I think everyone now finds it hard to sort of pinpoint another guy who can bring that was Patrick Beverly. Oh, okay. I think the problem with Patrick Beverly now is he tends to struggle with injuries pretty regularly. He's had, he's had a number of problems over the last few years. Sure. So it would it would be tough to trust a guy like that sort of longer term if that's what you're doing. And I sort of see, I see Delhi as maybe one of the, maybe one of the closest things you can get to Patrick Beverly in the NBA at the moment. And they both have, we'll say, reputations for slightly dubious plays at <laughs> the time. Uh, they can both shoot the three pointer. Beverly is a is a much better defender, but at least Delhi will apply himself in the same way. I feel this is something the books at both of those positions worked really hard on trying to figure out this summer. I just still am unsure if they've got the right guys. And I know one position I'm definitely leaning towards having got the wrong guy. All right. So here are my two picks. If I had to put in two role players next to those three, how about Steph Curry and LeBron James? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not going to let me have those two? No, that'd be nice, but... <laughs> All right. How about George Hill and Al Horford? Yeah, I, I like I like that one a lot. Um, George George Hill was someone else who was, I mean, when that trade went down, uh, books Twitter sort of erupted <laughs> oh, no. with. Really, I mean, we could have just got George Hill. Um, yeah, I, I like that one a lot. I like both of those. I, obviously, I like Al Horford. We'll get to that one in a second, <laughs> uh, but. George Hill, he's kind of just this really steady presence. And we're even seeing this with the Jazz already, even though he's sort of doing more than he's ever done before and he's scoring a little bit more. What I think would make him perfect for the for the books is just sort of his level-headed personality and surround like Yanis. If Yanis is going to have a lot of the ball, who do you want to be able to fall back on? Mm-hmm. George Hill is a really great option on that. Um, Horford... I mean, Horford is the dream. I probably, I, I didn't, I left guys like, say, Horford or Marcus all out, but just because financially, I don't know what the books would have to do to get there. But, I mean, yeah, the, the big thing for the books is if they could find a big man who's a really good defender and can also space the floor, whether that's the sort of mid-range 
game that's been a staple of Horford's career for a long time, or even the expanded range that he added the last 18 months or so, that is that is the ideal scenario. The problem is there's just not a lot of affordable guys out there who can do that, and for good reason. Um, I mean, if you're looking at three-point shooting big guys, it gets pretty grim. I mean, I think you arrive at Spencer Hawes much quicker than you want to oh, when looking no, for... I don't, I don't want to. Exactly. <laughs> so that's... Ideally, a three-point shooting big is perfect for the books. And I, I also think that is part of the reason why they probably went with Tom Maker. Just longer term, if they can get him to be the kind of player they feel he may become, he might be their best chance of adding a guy who can offer rim protection and three-point shooting from that spot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Al, Al Horford would be the dream for the books. That's, it doesn't get much per, much more perfect in terms of fit. I was cheating there. I've been conditioned so long with people telling me Al Horford's not a star. I figured I could squeak away with him as a, as a fourth option. Yeah, that's a, he, he, that's he a really weird is a star, though. I, I was cheating. That's a that's one of the stranger things. I wrote about, just before the season, I wrote about Horford and really how Horford could change the Celtics over the next, say, year to 18 months, if not even just from his own individual play, just the knock-on effect. I don't think people realize quite how much other sort of star-caliber players would like the idea of playing with Al Horford. I think that's something that... He's a player who always seems to be rated very highly by his peers. Mm-hmm. And maybe more weight should be applied to that by fans who don't feel he's a star player. Because it's, it's always a good sign if the best players in the league sort of say to themselves, yeah, I'd really like to play with that guy. But when I wrote that piece, I was uh, I was amazed. I mean, on my sort of, because I'm a books writer and all, my social media, there's not always an obvious indication that I'm a Hawks fan. So when I wrote that piece, my mentions were suddenly filled with Hawks fans telling me I, I knew nothing about Al Horford. <laughs> and he really he really isn't that good, and everyone's going to find that out this year. And that's there's maybe a touch of bitterness there, but that is a it's a strange sort of about turn that's seemed to sort of come out in the last few months. When I when I look at the Bucks, you know, trying to think of them putting together a lineup that can defend a point guard if Giannis is, in fact, their point guard on offense. I don't really want them to go small. I, I, I you know, when, like with somebody like Delavadova, and he's not small, he's, what, 6'4", mm-hmm. but he yeah. doesn't have a huge wingspan, and he doesn't no. play like a large player. You know, when, when you watch, you know, some situations in certain games down the stretch, you'll often see them putting a wing player at the point just to get that extra length on the ball. And so it's not so much a matter of finding a small player to defend the ball, but I I think they would be better served by finding a big player that has that in their skill set and then just have, you know, five massive players. You know, if you look at somebody like Tabo Cephalosha... Yeah, I was was just about to say it. This was a guy who... We sort of started to talk about behind Doug Pass sort of late in the season um, last year as someone say, and now obviously Tabo is that little bit older, so really timeline-wise it probably would never work out for the books anyway. Sure. But if ya- if Yanis did become this guy who was just so comfortable in being the point guard and you didn't need someone else really to initiate the offense or do too much in that sort of fifth position whether that's point guard or sort of an auxiliary wing 
Taba would have been perfect for the books. Yeah, I mean that's that's the idea, and you know he probably doesn't have enough, uh, you know, creation of offense to to make that work. But if you, you think of players in that vein, like of course you know you were picking on a superstar here, but somebody like Kawhi, you mm-hmm. know, if, you, if you just find somebody big who can defend point guards, I mean I think that's really the ideal scenario for the Bucks. Like when the Seventy Sixers played the Hawks the other day, they were using Robert Covington as their defender at the point. You know, somebody like that who's, you know, six, how big is he? Six, 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 seven, six, eight. You know, he could make six, eight, I think. Yeah. And he's long as well. He was a guy, he was a guy when Middleton went down, there was rumors that the Sixers were open to trading him. And although he, I think Covington is really more of a four than anywhere else. Okay. He just has a really sort of diverse and versatile range of skills that you could probably get away with him playing some two. You could definitely get away with him playing some three. Those sort of players are, they're fascinating. I think as like a thought experiment, they are definitely the funnest route to go, what the books can become and filling out with ideal guys around them. How does it's, it, oh, it just depends on, no, you're okay. It just depends <laughs> on what Yanis though is going to be. And we're only nine games into the season, but I've been given pause on exactly how the books are using him at the moment. Okay in terms of just what they're going to do that he's not running the offense in quite the same way he did post all-star break last year and i'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing yet i don't on our podcast behind the book pass the winning six podcast we actually we just recorded last night and we were we were discussing i guess we like to be known as the black sheep in the books community so he said okay (laughs) Everyone else is talking about how great Yanis is, and he is great, but there can be sort of an element now that he gets more national attention than ever before. People sort of dip their toes in, they see all the great stuff and the highlights, and that's really all that's out there. So we decided to look at some of the areas where he does still need to improve, and rather than that being a criticism, it's it's really a big positive because he's only 21, so if he can improve in those areas, that's when he truly becomes unstoppable. One was obviously shooting, but the other was just sort of learning to have a greater sense of control. And this maybe ties over into some of what we spoke about in comparing him and Westbrook. His turnovers have been pretty high this year. And we were trying to figure out, is that because he's had the ball less and when he does get it, he's trying to force it? Or maybe was that something of an anomaly post all-star break last year when he was so crazily sort of efficient with the ball in his hands and because it's so early in the season i think we're all trying to weigh up well what exactly are we seeing what side of it is it is jason kidd feeling that maybe he's not quite ready yet he's still learning the position and there are going to be those mistakes and that makes it really tough to just sort of plug in the extra guy at that position without knowing exactly what Giannis is going to be he's going to have the ball a lot but is he going to be LeBron with the ball a lot who still has one of the best point guards in the league beside him or is he going to be the number one guy every single time up and down the floor okay so when Giannis was a rookie you know I remember he was skinny they didn't put the ball in his hands at all he was just out there to get some experience and maybe run a couple fast breaks and on in the half court offense his job was to go stand in the corner and get out of the way but he was a 35% three-point shooter in his rookie season. <laughs> and he hasn't really been close to that since. And it wasn't 
a beautiful shot. It wasn't really even a jump shot. It was more of like a set shot where, you know, with this long swooping motion. But it went in. And is that in any way concerning? My, my analogy here is that, you know, Dwight Howard, as an 18-year-old rookie, was a 67% free throw shooter. And, you know, I think they wanted him to get better. The Magic did at that point, And it never really happened. And it went the other way. It got worse and never really got better. It, what's going on here? I mean, why can't Giannis be a better shooter if, if he had that kind of intuition in his rookie season? So again, this is something that only last night, uh, myself and Jordan Tresky dived into really deep on our own podcast, so we'll go today. But the big conclusion we came to, and I, th- I think this fits both guys perfectly, is that at that stage of their careers as rookies, they're both acting a lot more instinctively. Yanis probably has the most overthought three-point motion in the league right now. I think where that shows up is, unlike probably any other player in the entire NBA, the more time Giannis gets to take a three-pointer, the worse that shot is going to be. Absolutely. It's 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 really something sort of strange, but when it just comes to him, and he, if the shot clock is winding down, the ball comes to him, and he has to shoot. He can put up this really smooth shot. He did it against the Pelicans just over a week ago. He had been 0 for 5 from three-point range for the game. He had, I think two air balls and one that just hit the front of the rim. And then with sort of two minutes left, the game really close and the shot clock winding down, the ball came to him and he knocked down as smooth a three-pointer as you're going to see. On the other hand, the Bucks played the Grizzlies on Saturday night. And in the first quarter, basically the Grizzlies had completely collapsed in on the paint and Yanis was on his own at the top of the arc. The ball came to him, and I would say he probably had three seconds to get the shot off. And when you give Giannis that time, the amount of hitches you see in his motion on the way up, by the time he gets to the top of his shooting arc, you're like, well, it's impossible that that shot can go in. And when Jordan and I spoke about this on our Win 6 podcast last night, what Jordan pointed out to me, and I felt was something really interesting, Yanis is a pretty solid free throw shooter, okay. but perhaps the most noticeable thing about Yanis' free three point shooting is he takes forever to take his take his shots. It's got to the stage now where opposing coaches are like shouting at refs, doing live counts of how long it's taking Yanis to take his free throws. He's often getting sort of ten to twelve seconds to actually take a free throw. Oh, that's a violation. Um, yeah, it is a violation, which, which is why, like, when they played the Mavs last week, Rick Carlisle was going crazy at the oh. referees, and he did it in the preseason as well, and it's, I think it's become something that is now known among coaches, so it's something they're trying to get into the referees' heads when they play the books, but I think that even shows, and Yanis is, he's known for being this relentless worker now, he's so determined, like, he is as a personality, he's the ideal guy you want to have all this talent because you know he's going to put the work in. I feel like the three-point shot is something that he's probably just doing too much thinking on, working too hard on it, and not really just relaxing and letting it fly and say trusting the work he's put in in practice. And where the parallel with Dwight comes in, 
of course, we all spent the summer watching these videos of Dwight working out and making jump shots, making free throws, making three-pointers. And then it comes to the court and it doesn't really translate. And I can only put that down with both guys as maybe it's too rigid. Maybe they're freezing up because they're they're trying to will the ball in or they're thinking so hard about, well, if I have my arm at this point, at this stage of my motion, this is when the ball is going to go in. Where just being a little bit more instinctive, like they probably naturally were at the age of 18 or whatever, that's probably going to give you better results for both guys. Yeah, I, I, it's funny that you uh, that you mentioned the amount of time. You know, early in the season when we were trying to figure out exactly what the Hawks were, I asked Kent Bazemore about you know pick and rolls that had Dwight in it when he was off when when Kent Bazemore was off the ball, and I said, well, you know, when when Dwight's rolling to the hoop, you'll probably have more time to shoot. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want more time to shoot. You know, I want to be open so that I can shoot it. But, you know, it has to be the same shot motion every time. You know, it, it, you can't change it just because you have more time. You really just want to shoot it the same way all the time. And and I, I think I agree with you. You know, when you t- when you look at, you know, Dwight as a rookie, Giannis as a rookie, and, and their development and the in their shots, their respective shots over the years, you know, it's, it's not a physical thing. I mean, you have these shot coaches that can help you with their mechanics and you get the right release and the right timing. But then where it all goes wrong is just they they don't believe it. You know, they they don't believe that they're going to make the shot necessarily, and that makes it a lot harder. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing with the the extra time, as as you mentioned, like the Bazemore quote, the problem for Yanis is he's going to get lots of time if that continues to be a trend because teams are going to step <laughs> off and let him shoot it. So he's never going to really feel the pressure of, okay, I have to shoot this shot right now. There's a defender in my face. He is a guy who, although he can make them occasionally, I don't think there's anyone in the league who you can defend more effectively by giving him space and time and saying, well, look, the three-pointer is there for you, so prove you can make it. I hear you. Well, you know, can can he still be effective, you know, even if he's, he, even if he isn't shooting well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, don't, I don't think... I mean, if Giannis figures out his shot, he is the complete package, and he he is borderline unstoppable. He's he's not like anything that has been in the NBA for quite some time. That is that is really the thing where if Giannis could become like, say, a 37, 38% three-point shooter on a sort of pretty consistent number of attempts. Oh, my goodness. Then it's, it's, game, it's game over. That is a big number. <laughs> but right now, I don't think even 33% is... Is a, is a long way away for Giannis. I don't think that matters, though. It's, this year is a tricky one because, obviously, with Chris Middleton out, it's changed the whole landscape of how the books look. Right. When Middleton is eventually back, which will probably and really should be next season, uh, rather than maybe for a few weeks or a late playoff push or anything this year, I think that will change it up, and particularly if Jabari's shooting proves to be sustainable. You don't need all five guys to be able to shoot the ball. It would certainly help if Giannis can do that, but he definitely has more than enough in the rest of his game to get away with it if it never fully clicks. I think so too. I mean, I look at like, you know, I think the, really the comparison for Giannis is LeBron. And yeah. you know, two seasons ago, uh, when when Cleveland made it to the finals against Golden State but ultimately lost, you know, 
LeBron James was so unbelievably dominant, and he could not make a shot. I mean, he, they tore through the, the Hawks and made a ridiculous number of three-pointers. Even though it wasn't LeBron making them, he just had to be the creator and the facilitator. And, I, you know, I think the Bucks can get away with something like that for Giannis, just provided they, uh, they put the right players around him. I, I think the biggest example of that has been when Mirza Teletovic has gone off this season, which he has done a couple of times, he had a seven seven of nine game from deep. Sure. That that has been with Yanis on the floor. And without Yanis Teletovic, he he looks completely useless to the books. Sure. He's getting found out defensively. When Yanis is on the floor <laughs> and Yanis has the ball and his drives are taking all the attention to the defense, if you collapse in and you leave a guy like Mirza Teletovic open, that's like someone collapsing and leaving Kyle Korver open. And... Sure. I think that's the perfect example of if you could have multiple guys like that, then it really doesn't matter. If Yanis can draw that attention in other ways, everyone's a winner. So when the Hawks play the Bucks uh, Wednesday night, and let's say Giannis plays 34 minutes, how should the Hawks go about defending a six foot eleven point guard? I think there's there's two guys that the Hawks have who are equipped to you can't really contain Giannis anymore, but they can at least sort of do enough to bother him. Okay. Um, one would be Kent Bazemore, just because of his length. Obviously, he gives up quite a lot in terms of height and size to, to Giannis, but Bazemore is as sort of determined and as gritty as a defender as you'll find. And he really, I think he plays his best defense when he has that kind of challenge. I know he's had a sort of mixed history of going up against LeBron, but he makes big plays in those games, like he like he did when when the Hawks beat the Cavs just over a week ago. I think that is that is a good matchup, but the best matchup is going to be Tavo Cephalosha. And so how would you uh, how would you carve up the minutes then for those two players? Um, I I think you're gonna you're gonna start with when you look at both teams starting groups, you're gonna have probably Baysmore as the guy early on and. I feel cover Tony Snell. That's fine. So you're you're not even the books don't have a two guard where you might say we need Snell's a little bit bigger. But I feel cover and Snell is a fine matchup. So Baysmore would be perfect early on. What the what the books tend to do now is Yanis is generally the first guy out. He tends to come out around around sort of the six-minute mark, around halfway through the first quarter, okay. and he comes in with about three minutes remaining in the first quarter. Okay. And from that point on, he spends a lot of time with the second unit. So if I was if I was Coach Bud, I think I'd be, I'd be trying to match up as much of my second unit rotations as possible with Giannis playing with their second unit. Because I think Cephalosha can sort of... He'll negate a lot of that threat, and I think probably overall across the rest of the group, the Hawks might just have an advantage in the second unit. I mean, you can't just you can't stop Yanis from being Yanis, so there are going to be plays where he'll get his own, but it, it really is. It's no different to when you come up against, say, a LeBron. You sort of accept, well, okay, he's going to do his thing, but in what way can we do enough that we disrupt him from maybe allowing other guys to to add in and sort of give what they have. For Giannis, the, 
foul trouble has been a big problem recently. He's had five fouls in his last three games. Someone who is a pretty sort of savvy defender and will just have the sense of sort of when to be a step further away from when to be a little bit tighter. That sort of player can get Yanis in foul trouble. When Yanis gets in foul trouble, the books crumble pretty quickly. So uh, I think Tabo's the perfect kind of guy for that. He is going to give up physical advantages, but there aren't many smarter defenders in the league. And I, I think on the Hawks, they're probably, there definitely is anyone. I'd expect to see some Millsap on Yanis as well. Oh, okay. Paul is a really good, versatile defender. We've seen him guard smaller guys or guys who play smaller, I guess, at different times before. I just hope that the Hawks stay away from that as much as possible and stick with a more traditional wing who may be smaller in stature, but will probably be a better matchup in style for Yanis. Fair enough. Uh, is it okay if we switch gears? Sure. I wanted to talk about the Hawks and Bucks and their respective efforts towards uh, developmental league teams. The Hawks this week unveiled uh, their D-League team, at least the fact that they're going to have one. It's going to be in College Park, Atlanta, and they're going to start play in the 2019-20 season, which, by the way, was mildly disorienting because they kept saying, when we start play in 1920, I'm like, when you start play in 1920, that was... You know, 90-something years ago. What do you mean 1920? But anyways, that's an aside. Um, but, but uh, you know, after the after the uh, press conference, um, Grant Hill was speaking on the side, and I asked him about what types of efforts the NBA put into facilitating the creation of D-League teams for NBA teams that didn't currently have one, and here's what he said. Right. Does the NBA sort of encourage it as an organization when they talk to teams and try to facilitate? You know, I think Malcolm Turner might be probably the better person to talk to, but I think the plan is that for every team to have their own affiliate, you know, and I think that's sort of what's in the pipeline for the league. I think that's what they envision. We're moving in that direction. I think we'll be the 23rd franchise, and so yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's it's an ideal sort of farm system, uh, and I think you'll see more and more teams uh, incorporating the D League, much like how Doug, uh, Bud envisioned, you know, being able to you know practice with the team and then maybe play with the D League team that night. And the fact that we have close proximity allows for uh, you know just a, a seamless uh, coexistence, if you will as opposed to being three or four hour flight away or three or four hour drive away, having it in your own backyard is I think essential and critical. So, um, so yeah, I, mean, I think the league is definitely emphasizing that and uh, making it a point of emphasis for every team. Uh, I, I think there's a cutoff date where they want every team to have one by a certain time. I just don't know the, the exact date. Okay, Adam. So uh, let, let's look at Milwaukee first. How close are the Bucks getting uh, to having their own D-League team? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> the Bucks have been very close, it seems, for quite a while now. Um, we're probably going back to, let's say, March of this year, the latter part of last season, when rather than it being something that 
the franchise wanted to do down the line. We started to hear the owners and team president Peter Fagan and GM John Hammond. All these guys started to talk a little bit more openly about it as a reality. Um, it's been confirmed they're going to have a team. They have taken applications from multiple cities. Originally, they had five or six different cities apply. That process has been whittled down to three at the moment. So it's between Oshkosh, Sheboygan, and Racine. And I think Racine is pretty much widely accepted to be a big outsider. What the books had said was by October, November, we were going to have a decision. Because their plan is to have a team next season. Okay, um, wow. So, so no 2019-20 here. This is next season. The books are saying they're going to have a D-League team. Right. So with the Hawks, so, they were, they were you know, the reason for the delay there is that the arena is actually being built. I'm assuming that in Oshkosh and Sheboygan, they have existing arenas that they can start play next season? No. Um, they no. don't. So what Peter Fagan, the, the team president, spoke about recently, he, his quote to be exact was, it's our hope to have a decision by October, November this year and to be able to start running probably in a temporary location, a D-League team into next season. Oh, okay. Now, my suspicion on this is the Bucks have their new state-of-the-art practice facility opening next next season, before the start of next season. And I would guess that is what the Bucks will do if they have their D-League team fully up and running. Like, say, the Lakers have done. It's been a common thing sort of on and off for D-League teams, particularly newer D-League teams, to start out of a team's practice facility. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Um, there are arenas. There, there, well, there is an arena in Oshkosh, but their proposal is sort of mostly formed on the idea of a new arena. Okay. In Sheboygan, they have the old Sheboygan Armory, which is a pretty sort of incredible setting to have any sort of basketball arena. It's a, It's a really sort of... The plans they've drawn up for it look like it could be something really pretty special to look at and would seem like a very good option, but there is going to be sort of a renovation process that might take about a year to get that fully ready as well. Okay. So it's between those two, but there is going to be a temporary location first. The so, big things for... Oh, God. Sorry, go on. What, what should the Bucks be looking for? As you know, when they try to make this decision, what what are some of the ideal characteristics that they should be putting into you know their selection of town, arena, personnel? Well, what the books have flagged up as, I suppose, their top priority in this process has been locating the team in a part of the state where they don't really have much of a presence at the moment. They want to sort of expand the fan base further throughout Wisconsin. So, for example, somewhere when the idea of it came up that we thought would be an obvious location for a D-League team was Madison. Sure. The books are already pretty well established there, though. Um, so even though, like, with University of Wisconsin, there might be some obvious locations you could host a D-League team, they said they wanted to stay away from the Milwaukee, Madison area, and they wanted to expand somewhere where they could grow their presence throughout the state. This has been sort of a big mandate of the new owners since they came in because they were amazed initially when they bought the team at just how little sort of books presence and books merchandise could be found throughout the state of Wisconsin. 
that probably has as much to do with the Packers than anything <laughs> the books have done. Um, I would hope that a given underneath that is obviously the biggest advantage you're going to get from a D-League team is developmental purposes for, for your main basketball team, whether that's to whether that's to maybe take some flyers and guys who you utter, otherwise wouldn't, whether that's in the draft or free agency because you have a place like that that you could assign them to. And if we're being honest with that, there's probably no team who could do with a D-League franchise more than the books right now, having drafted Ton Maker. Oh. I would hope that's a big part of it, and they, they've made a conscious effort to sort of keep the team within... I think they said they wanted it within two hours of Milwaukee so that it was somewhere where say players could easily travel from one to the other where Jason Kidd, John Hammond, guys like this could easily go and watch a game one place or the other. So there seems to be the developmental focus of it as well. But I do think a big part for the books is they feel it can be some sort of marketing or awareness opportunity just to generally sort of grow and build support for the franchise around the state. And of course with, the new arena coming for the Milwaukee books proper. That's, that's something that's quite important because they want to have a wider net, I guess, to draw from so they can fill that building out on a regular basis. Yeah. The Hawks took the opposite tack. They, uh, they picked a site that was eight miles from Phillips arena. And, you know, while they are sort of expanding, around the city a little bit. They sort of put the practice facility north of Phillips, and now this facility is going to be, you know, south of Phillips, and so you're kind of covering all the bases. You know, they also said that, you know, one of the reasons they chose College Park was because it was a place where, you know, the Hawks had, you know, one of their highest Q ratings that, that you know, um, when you compare College Park, the College Park area to other areas around the city, uh, the Hawks rated higher there than they did anywhere else. So, they're not really looking to maybe push their brand around the region. Uh, they're staying close to home. They're putting the arena where they, you know, they think they're already popular, and they're trying to keep it close because, you know, they said that, you know, they wanted to have a setup where, the D League players could practice, you know, with the parent club, during the day, and that same night, if there was a game, they could play down in College Park. So they, you know, their idea is that they want that flexibility of keeping the team super close so that you know they can have that mobility i wonder even with that could there be maybe a part of it that's that other angle too because aren't the braves moving out of atlanta yeah, the braves moved far north and right this this is this is kind of you know in the direction of turner field turner field's a lot closer to the downtown than than college park is college park is kind of out by the airport but yeah i mean it they they could kind of fill in that vacuum a little bit yeah like i wouldn't i wouldn't expect it to be sort of driven <laughs> driven by that situation and you're not gonna plug an, an nba d league franchise in and sort of make up for the braves moving a little bit more out um but i, I it's sort of even as a pr thing to sort of say look we're keeping everything sort of really grounded in the heart of Atlanta. Maybe that's that's something interesting as well from that side of it. But I, I think from the rest of it, I mean, it sort of stays in keeping with everything we know about the Hawks and the whole, I guess, even the Spurs ethos of everything, that they would want to have their D-League team quite so close and they would be able to work 
sort of hand in hand in everything they do. I I feel like that is very much the way like Budenholzer and Wes Wilcox like to do things. They are pretty hands-on in as much as they can possibly be hands-on about. So I, I feel like that is, and considering how good the Hawks player development has been, you'd also want to make sure that you're not sort of outsourcing it and leaving it in someone else's hands who isn't going to do quite as good a job. So I do feel like there's a real logic in keeping the two quite close together and allowing the staffs to, I guess, really be all of all of the same staff, sort of let them mesh to that point where you do have the option that, say, assistant coaches who are in charge of player development can regularly go down and spend time with your, your D-League group and go from there. I think that is the best strategy for a team who's run like the Hawks are. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, that, it feels like they're going to be a little bit behind the curve. I mean, there are already so many teams. They said that, that you know, this was sort of the, the announcement of this Hawks team was the 23rd team. But mm-hmm. by the time it actually gets into operation, you know, we'll, there there might be seem, it almost feels like there might be some, some D-League teams that start up between now and then, and they're going to be at the, the tail end of the curve. Yeah, I mean, that that is a long wait for, from the announcement to the arena. So that is... That is quite a bit of time. I, I'd be surprised if they're not one of the last teams to actually be up and running. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. I really appreciate your insight. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> we'll have to do this again soon. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thanks, Adam.